Listen up, real estate investors, entrepreneurs, and agents. You're in the right place. Unlocking the secrets to real estate investing and entrepreneurship. Welcome to the Titanium Vault, hosted by RJ Bates III. Here's RJ. Hey guys, welcome to the Titanium Vault. I'm your host, RJ Bates. Today I'm sitting down with my buddy, Pablo Rodriguez. How you doing, my man? Doing great, brother. How you doing? Good. So uh, I, I know you've got an incredible story that you're going to be sharing with us today. Uh, why don't you take a quick second to kind of introduce yourself and tell everybody what it is that you do in real estate investing. Okay. Uh, name's Pablo Rodriguez, uh, known as the Hustlepreneur, 37 years old, two days ago, Truly blessed to hit that Happy age. birthday, my man. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, I'm here in San Antonio, man, and I wholesale, you know, all over San Antonio and, and different parts of Texas. We're out in Houston and Dallas now as well. Uh, and just building a business, man. Awesome, man. Well, let's let's jump into that story of yours. Uh, how, how did you become the hustlepreneur? Well, it all started. <laughs> uh, well... I guess I kind of got to go back to how, you know, where it all began. So I, I grew up in Lower East Side, New York, and I also grew up in uh, Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Uh, so kind of back and forth, my parents had got divorced when I was, you know, about two years old. And my dad was in the Army, uh, and my mom was uh, civil a uh, civil service for the government. And uh, I used to, you know, divorce families, you go back and forth. You end up, you know, bouncing around a lot. And that's what, you know, transpired with me. Uh, my dad, he was always deployed. He was really, you know, he was 82nd Airborne Division. He was in everything. And sometimes I end up staying with my grandparents in the Lower East Side of Manhattan in uh, projects called Smith Projects, man, which is where I call home. That's where I know that was home. You know what I mean? Uh, so growing up there, I played ball. I was a football player and a baseball player. Um, my mom, she always wanted a better life for me. You know, she always wanted me to do more and achieve more because she's a big go-getter. She's like the most alpha female you could possibly know. And uh, I get all of my strong traits from her. So anyway, uh, in middle school and high school, I was really a standout uh, football and baseball player. And so she sent me to a place called Fork Union Military Academy in Fork Union, Virginia. And I actually... Uh, played ball with a couple of Heisman Trophy, trophy uh, candidates and a winner. Uh, my first year there, Eddie George was there. Nice. And yeah, yeah I, got to, I, got, I got to work with Eddie, man, and dude was a beast. I mean, guy had calves like penguins, you know? <laughs> That's but, awesome. What position did you play? I was a running back. I played – I was a tailback and fullback because I'm, I'm a big guy. I'm 5'11 and a half. Right now, sitting at a, a chunky 260. <laughs> but I used to be a lean, mean, you know, machine on the field. And I ran a 4240. I was, I was really nice. good. You know? Yeah. Uh, well, and uh, hey, you're, you were learning from Eddie George. I mean, that's a, that's a hell of a person to learn how to play tailback behind. Dude, listen, this guy, I kid you not, after every practice, he would put a, one of those parachutes on around his waist and he would run. 10 to 20 hundred yard sprints after you know a two-hour practice wow. every day in, in and you know those shoes that the basketball players wear to help them jump higher that's what he was running sprints and they had built him a special set with cleats in it 
So that way it was all – he'd run the entire 100 yards on his toes. Wow. And, I mean, I remember asking one day, like, dude, why do you do this every day after practice? And he was like, because I won it. Because I, I, I'm going to go pro. Right. And I was just like, man, you know. And it was crazy, you know, years later I thought about it. And I was just like, man, that dude's work ethic, you know. And when people started talking about work ethic and truly chasing, chasing your dreams, he was one of the first people that popped up in my head. He knew he was going to go, you know. Not and, only that, did, not only did he go pro, but like you said, he, he won the Heisman Trophy. He, he goes pro. He was an absolute workhorse in the NFL. I mean, yeah. I remember there was a point, point in time where people were talking about the workload that Eddie George had, and, like, they were concerned about him. Like, I, I think he was with the Tennessee Titans, and they were like, the, you know, the, 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 the Titans are running him too much. Like, his, his career is going to be cut short. And I think actually eventually – it did, yeah. His career was cut short after he came to the Cowboys. And, uh, you know, he, uh, an amazing uh, running back during his time, you know, by far, you know, one of the best in, in the NFL at the time. So that's amazing that you got to, to play ball with him. Who were some of the other guys you got to play with? A uh, guy by the name of Chris Perry. Uh, he went to Michigan and he was the Heisman Trophy candidate. And <laughs> it's, it's crazy how this is all going to tie in. So, Eddie was graduating when I was coming in, right? And Chris and me were actually we same year and everything. And I actually lost the tailback position to Chris because he was he was bigger than me and he was faster than me. And I mean nobody could tackle this guy. And I I mean I was good, but they were like, Pablo, make a hole for Chris. I was like, all right, I got you. So they put me in fullback, and my job was, hey, make that hole. So I used to blast the hole wide open. Next, you know, Chris scores a touchdown. Right. Uh, Chris played for Michigan, was a Heisman candidate. I think he got runner-up that year, and uh, he went to play for the Bengals. Yep. I, I, I didn't really follow much after that because I'm not a Cincinnati fan. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you go to the military school. You, you, you Obviously, you know, this was a, a great school for athletes. You know, yeah. that's why people were going to the school. You know, I, what, what kind of happened next in your, your travels there? Well, I, we, I had three undefeated back-to-back -back seasons. Um, I was getting scouted like crazy, man. And I, I played baseball. I was a pitcher. I was really good. Uh, also getting scouted there from all over. And my freshman year, uh, my grandfather passes away. And like my grandfather, he was my dad when my dad wasn't there, you know? And I used to, I used to call him like, you ever, you've, you've seen Rocky, right? Yeah. You remember how Rocky used to always go to the, to the church and get the blessing from, from, from the priest, right? So I'm, poor, I'm half Puerto Rican, half Haitian. My mom's Haitian, my dad's Puerto Rican, right? And I really grew up predominantly with the Puerto Rican side of the family, you know, fluent in Spanish the whole nine. Um, I used to always call my grandfather before every game for the blessing. And uh, excuse me, I'm getting a little emotional thinking about it. Oh, it's cool, man. So I, I used to call him every every game to, to get that blessing. Like, I never missed it. And... Man, like, I don't know what it was, like, talking to the old man, some, hey, you know, Papa, man, I, I got a big game today, man, and, you know, necesito la bendición, which means, you know, I need, I need the blessing. And he said, I got you, mijo, you know what I mean? And he, he, he gave me a little blessing that he used to do, and uh, he passed away Thanksgiving of my freshman high school year. And 
uh, we had just, we had like, we were literally like, I think we were like one game away from my last undefeated season. And um, I went back to school after Thanksgiving break, you know, we just buried him. And uh, I call and my grandmother picks up the phone. Like I, I call just like, like a robot out of habit, you know? And I, and, and I, I went into the little phone booths that they had for us and I dialed up the number man and uh, my grandmother picks up the phone and she's like, hey, Junior, what's up? And I'm like, hey, you know, hey, Grandma, how's it going, you know? And, and then it dawns on me and, she, and I got quiet and she's like, what's up? And uh, I said, I, I got a game today. And she's like, oh, go out there, you know, kill it, you know, kill it. You know, Junior, do what you do. And uh, she's like, what's wrong? And I was like, you know, I, I uh, normally, you know, I call Bob's to get the blessing. And he's not there. And so she like, you know, she did the best she could and she gave me the blessing. I remember for the game, my coach was like, hey, you all right, Rod? Wow. I don't <laughs> I don't know what okay, man. I, I love it. He uh she said, you know, my coach was like, man, you know, you all right, Rod? Because that's what everybody called me, Rod. Cause they call you by your last name, Rodriguez. Like, all right. Rod, you all right? And I was like, I was like, man, you know, I, I told my coach, uh, Coach Chapman. And uh he was also the chaplain for the uh for for the school, you know. And he sat down and he talked with me, man. And he was he was my wrestling coach too, you know, so I was really tight with him. And he lifted me up, man. I, I probably had like one of the best games I ever had. But I crashed and burned after that. I uh, I lost it. And uh, lost a little I was, I was, I, I, I lost my cool man and I, I was, beefing with the staff and just bucking against the whole system, you know? I didn't want to be there anymore. I just wanted to get back to New York. And uh, I got kicked out. Family was really disappointed. And uh, actually didn't even go back to New York right away. Uh, when I went to uh, my mom's house in Fayetteville, North Carolina and uh, tried going to school there. And uh, I was just, I just wasn't in it, you know. My part of me was, was gone. And he was, out of all of my family, my, my grandfather and my dad were the ones that truly believed I could go pro. They supported me 100%, you know, and never even questioned it. My grandfather used to say, you know, I can't wait to see you our name on a Yankees jersey. And it's really, you know, a Rodriguez from our family, you know? And my dad used to say the same thing. He's like, you're gonna go play for the Giants one day. <laughs> and- uh, Would they still have been proud for you if you had gone to the Mets or the Jets, depending on- <laughs> I mean, clearly yeah. uh, clearly y'all were biased in which New York teams you were going to. Yeah. we. We were definitely biased, man. Uh, I could tell you some stories. My <laughs> cousins and my aunts dating Mets fans, how my grandmother reacted. At the 
<laughs> That's awesome. Hey, well, real quick before you before you carry on about how you you kind of took a bad turn there, I you know I I feel where you're coming from, man, because you know I've shared bits and parts of this story, but in 2012 is when you know I started my company. Um, you know, my niece got diagnosed with leukemia. I started my company, and then my dad passed away. Um, my dad passed away. Um, a month after I started my company and my son was born a month after my dad passed away. Wow. So my dad, my dad fell in his house that I grew up in. We lived in for, you know, 20 plus years, almost 30 years. Um, he watched the Cowboys play on Monday night football. They lost to the Eagles. Um, my mom fell asleep. She got up and she went to bed. She almost never goes to sleep before my dad. And my dad watched the end of the game, watched the post game, sports center, whatever. And he got up and they have a sunken living room that goes up to the corner that goes down the hallway. And it's marble when you step up and he, he slipped and fell and hit his head and, uh, and never woke up. And that was on September 5th, I believe. And then he died on September 21st, um, 16 days later. Um, you know, they, they called, um, I got the call at 10 PM on September 20th. And they said, um, he, he's not going to make it much longer. You need to get down here. And, uh, I went to the hospital. Uh, my dad's mom was there. My mom was there and I was there. And, uh, you know, they basically they, he had died and, and they gave him a, a shot of, adrenaline or whatever it is they do to keep them alive to allow us to basically say goodbye and then he started to go again and they said do you want us to resuscitate him or do you want to let him go and and my mom couldn't say it my my grandma couldn't say it and and I was the one that had to say let him go and uh you know I, I sat there and, and watched my dad die and uh and then a month later you know what i were i'm leaving work on october 18th which mind you my son was born on my birthday october 19th so um he his due date was october 19th and basically the doctors had said we need to induce labor um when do you want to do it and i made the decision that hey i i want my son trinity to be born on my birthday and so on october 18th i'm leaving work knowing that I'm going home to pick up Jana and, and we're going to go to the, to the hospital. And, uh, this was the first moment that I, I lost it. Like I could not emotionally handle the fact that I could not call my dad and ask my dad, like I, I needed someone to tell me I could be a dad. I needed someone to tell me that I could take on that responsibility and I was, I will never forget it. I, my dad wasn't a big Garth Brooks fan. He loved country music, but for whatever reason at his funeral, they played the dance during this video. I don't know who came up with that song, but, um, you know, I, I listen, I'm, I'm leaving work and I turn on the dance and, um, my dad, my whole life, he had told me that this Conway Twitty song called that's my job, <clears throat> excuse me, um, was his song to me. So I, 
I was like torturing myself. I turned on the dance. I turned on that's my job. And I was just so angry. I remember sitting at a, a traffic light and I was just like punching my steering wheel. And I was like, why did you have to take my dad away a month before I'm about to come? I don't know how to become a dad. I have no grandfathers. Both my grandfathers are, are dead. My dad's now dead. I don't have anybody to turn to. I don't know how to do this. And, you know, those are... Those emotional states of when you lose somebody is it, it's you don't know how to handle it, you know. And for me, the only thing that got me through it is I realized that I did not have a physical presence father anymore, but I had the ultimate father with God. And and I just I reached out to God and I said, Give me peace, show me how to do this. And, and I'll be honest with you, man, I have, I have never, since that moment, I've never had one moment where I've said, it's not fair that I don't have a dad to teach me how to be a dad anymore. I've never once felt overwhelmed being a dad. I love it more than anything. And the fact that God has given me that peace uh, for the people out there that maybe won't be believers that's okay. This is what I believe in because I've, I've reaped the benefits of it. And I've, I've realized that, you know, God laid his hand on my shoulder and has guided me through the process of being a dad. So I just wanted to share that because, you know, there might be somebody that's listening to this right now that's going through a similar situation with the loss of a loved one that, you know, has such a huge impact on your lives. And it's just the little things, right? Like all you needed was him just to sit there and give you that blessing, right? That, that's all you needed. Uh, to know that there was someone there that was, you know, uh, looking over you and, and giving you that just guidance. And, you know, the funny thing about it is, is I know if I had called my dad, he wouldn't have told me anything mind-blowing. My dad wasn't like a motivational speaker or anything like that, you know. It's the same thing with your grandfather, you know. Uh, it's just a simple little blessing, and then you were going to go out and do what you needed to do. So um, at the end of the day, just – uh, you know, me and you both kind of went different situation, different routes in the, in the, how to handle those. And I think the big part, a big part of that is, is mine was happening a decade plus after yours. You know, I was more mature and in a little bit of a different situation. So let, let's get back to your story. So obviously, you know, you, you moved to North Carolina, you're, yeah. you're kind of going through a tough time in your life. So where did you go from there? Uh, basically, I just kept getting, like, I, I, I started the cycle of trouble at military school, just getting kicked out of there. And then I just was rebelling against everything. Like, my mom, she tried her best, but I'm, I can be a lot. <laughs> Me had uh, 15, 14, because I was 14 when he passed away. And, uh, you know, 14, 15, I'm, I'm wilding out. Uh, I'd been very closed off from a lot of things because I'd been spending the last you know, three years in military school. And so now I'm, I'm, I'm out in regular society and interacting, going to public school and stuff like that. And I'm just, I'm drowning myself in, in just numbness. You know what I mean? Uh, just trying to just numb what I'm really feeling inside and not really knowing, you know, who I could talk to. Uh, we never were like really outspoken individuals in our family. Like, really speaking about our problems, we always just kind of brush them under the rug, you know? And so like, it's crazy because from there, like 
the stages that I was going through, I just kept getting worse and worse. And my mom and my dad, they both tried everything. And I just, I just spiraled out, man. And I got back to New York. Uh, I had caught a couple charges in Carolina and then went back to New York, get up to New York. And everybody's like, you know, I'm like the little neighborhood, you know, hero. Everybody knows I play ball and everything. And they're like, Hey, what's going on, man? No, you're killing it this season. And it's just like, fresher mind is man I'm like nah man I'm not I'm not playing ball no more you know and uh, I went back in school and tried to get back into baseball and messed my arm up couldn't pitch like I used to anymore so it was like now I'm really what am I going to do all I've ever thought I was going to do is play ball right in Smith Projects the rule is if you're not playing ball you got to sell dope you know and so I started hanging around all the guys who weren't doing anything and you know, I, I put myself in the wrong positions. And uh, long story short, man, I, 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 started, I started selling dope. I saw, I saw the money in it and I was just like, okay, I'm not meant to be anybody's little corner boy. I got to get my own money. And I started, you know, making moves and doing things. And years went on and I was making good money, you know, living that so-called high life. And federal government came. <laughs> Um, 2001, right after 9-11, um, I was, well, hold on, let me back up. I, my mom and, and my stepdad and my dad were all like, Hey, you got to do something. You know, now I'm like right around 18, right? Uh, I had done a little stint and got my GED while I was locked up. And when I came out, I was just like, man, you know, I'm, I'm going to try to, you know, something different. And my dad was like, like my mom, hey, why don't you go into service? Took the ASVAB, scored really high. Didn't say anything about my felonies, right? So they're ready to take me in, ready to give me this high enlistment bonus. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to go, you know, I'm going to go follow my dad and my grandfather's footsteps, right? Recruiter calls back and says, hey, man, you didn't tell me about this felony you got on your jacket. I was like, I was 16. You know, I didn't think it mattered. He said, no, nah, it does matter. We're not going to be able to take you. Mm. And I was like, all right, it is what it is. So then I, I remember sitting that night and I'm like, what am I going to do? I had actually gone back to New York to enlist because at that time in New York, uh, enlisting, they were, they were given more higher bonuses, you know, based on where you're at. Uh, if there's higher recruitments in that area, then the bonus is going to be less than where it is where there's less recruitments because they're trying to draw more people. So I was back in New York and that didn't, it didn't pan out. I went back to the block and I started doing my thing. I was selling ecstasy and cocaine and um, feds came. I was actually trafficking up and down the Eastern seaboard. And um, I caught a case in Carolina. I knew Carolina, you know, and I was going out there. It was good money and feds came uh, and indicted me. It was, it was insane. I mean, at the time I was, I was like 18 years old and I got this federal indictment and I didn't know what was going to happen, but I was just like, well, it is what it is. They came at me and they said, look, you know, they had a bunch of trumped up charges of uh, what we call ghost dope. You know, they, oh, we know you've been selling for a year and we busted one of the, one of these informants. And they said they, you know, they copped, you know, 
a 20 a day or a half ounce a day, whatever off of you. And they just add it up and put this insane amount on you. Right. So they told me you're looking at uh, multiple uh, life sentences. And I was like, what? And they're like, yeah, we want, we want information. I was like, well, look, man, I don't know nothing about nothing. I said, but if you're going to offer me life, put, get 12 people, find two alternates just in case somebody gets sick, put them in a box and let's rock. Cause I'm not signing for 30. I'm not signing for life. I'm not signing for none of it. And they looked at me, they're like, you gotta be out of your mind. Do you know who we are with the federal government? I, said, I know exactly who you are, but I'm not who signs for life. Right. Forget it. So again, it was a bunch of trumped up stuff. I, I did go to trial. A lot of stuff got thrown out. And at the end of the day, I got found guilty of a possession of a firearm because that was actually the only thing that was solid evidence. Uh, they had a firearm that had my prints on it. The conspiracy charges were all thrown out and dismissed, uh, even on the state level, because they went from federal level to state level to back up to federal level. All of it got thrown out. You know, it was just a bunch of conspiracies. And honestly, everybody that had got busted with me, only one person turned. And that one person wasn't enough to solidify the conspiracy. So I was sentenced to 10 years in one month. Uh, it was crazy because like my trial was like, it was like something made for TV, you know? <laughs> it really was. And I, I remember when I got found guilty, my stepmom, uh, her and my dad were actually at the trial because when a lot of, of my family didn't know what I was doing and a lot of my family knew what I was doing, but they didn't approve what I was doing. So they didn't support, but my dad, he had my back. You know, my mom, she couldn't, she couldn't be there because it was just too much for her. You know, seeing me, you know, in a trial like that, she, it was just, it was overwhelming and it was way too much for her. Um, my dad, he came there in his class A uniform, stood at attention when I got up and, they, you know, they found me guilty. And my stepmom, she broke down screaming and everything. And my dad was like, you just got to be, hey, stand up, be strong. Don't, you can't let them see you like that. We can't, we can't let Junior get weak, you know? And then uh, at my sentencing, like I have I, written out this whole speech to the judge, you know, and the judge, he was actually a good judge. He said, look, I wanted to throw your case out because there was a lot of inaccuracies. There was evidence that was lost. Uh, there was a lot of stuff that was, you know, all fudged up because they said all this stuff to get me indicted. But then when it came time to show it, to find me guilty, they didn't have it. You know, there was video footage, surveillances, all this stuff that they had, it was magically disappeared, you know? And the judge was like, look, I think you're a good young man who made mistakes. And hearing how you present yourself, how you talk, I know that you have a future. He says, right now you got found guilty. I do have the power and typically it is my regular to give you the max when you get found guilty at, in, in trial. He says, I'm going to give you the low end of the guidelines. And he, so he gave me the, the, the lowest allowable sentence, which, which, which was 121 months, 10 years, one month. And I remember my, so my stepmom was like, 121? And she's all like on her fingers. And <laughs> she's panicking. And, and uh, my dad's like, it's, it's 10 years. It's 10 years. And she's like, oh, okay, okay. And so he gave me 10 years. And I, got in, I get into the federal system and, I got sent to one of the worst penitentiaries, man. I, you know, 19 years old now, I got sent to Lewisburg Penitentiary where 
three, only 3% three of the population actually has a number for a sentence, but only 1% actually has a number that they can walk out the door on. So you got guys that have 30 years and up, right? 30 years is considered like a number you can walk out on if, if you come in at a, a young enough age, right? Right. But my first celly had 11 life sentences plus 340 years. And this was the, the regular. Like nobody thought about, nobody talked about going home. Everybody just talked about the old days, you know? Right. I get to this prison and my dad had told me, he said, I've, I've heard of that spot where you're going. He said, Junior, you're going to be like the youngest person there. He's like, you're going to have to rock. You know, you're going to have to put in some work. You're going to have to let them know that Pablo Rodriguez ain't nobody's uh, punk, you know? Right. And that was all on my mind, the whole bus right there. And first day, my first day there, like the, they have what's called Quay, where they, the warden and everybody down comes and sits on this panel and they talk to you before you actually go out to the yard. And so a lot of my stuff was, uh, you know, in the news and everything like that and blown out of proportion. And, and when I get there, they're like, uh, you know, you're, going to be the youngest inmate in this prison. And I was like, all right. They're like, um, do you want to stay in lockup? I was like, no, put me in the yard. They're like, do you know where you're? I said, I know exactly where I'm at. I said, but uh, I'm not going to spend the next 10 years in a, in a, in a small cell. You're out of your mind. Nah. I right. said, well, it is what it is. I said, I can hold my own. And I, I mean, I grew up boxing. I grew up playing ball. My oldest brother uh, boxed pro for a long time, you know, so I, I know how to, I got hands and I get out there and this Muslim guy from Philly, as soon as I get into the block, uh, he comes up to me and he's like, can, I, I don't want to use profane language. If No, 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 that's fine. Tell your story. All right. So dude basically comes up to me. He says, you know, what you going to do? You going to fuck or you going to fight? And I looked at him and I just, I punished him. Right. I, I punished him and they locked me up and the, the captain comes to my cell and he says, Hey Rodriguez. I'm like, yeah, what's up? He goes, I like how you get down. And I was like, what? He was like, got tested and you put, you put in the work. You ain't scared. He said, I like that. I can respect that. Especially since you're the youngest kid in this prison. You want to go back out? I said, yeah. And he looked, he looked at the CEO, he says, let him out, put him back in his block. Cause they, everything was on camera. You know, they seen the guy come straight up to me and everything. Right. It is what it is. But I just, I was like so lost. And you know, you spoke about God with your situation. When my grandfather was taken from me, I was like, in my mind, I, I really felt like there's no God. Right. Joke. And I, I literally had that belief in me while I was in prison for the longest time, man. And it's funny how that, that works because I was in Lewisburg and like completely denying God. And, you know, I ran into people who were like legends on the street. You know what I mean? And a couple days later, after I'd been in Lewisburg, um, so I, I was a Latin king and, one of the head like 
most well-known Latin kings in my area, like in Manhattan, in Smith Projects, was a guy by the name of Sweet Pea. That was his nickname, Sweet Pea. But he was the head of a group called LES, which was the Latin Execution Squad, right? And I see him, and they bring him up to me. And just, hey, this is a, this is a Pablo, you know, or they call me Esco. This is Esco, and uh, this is Sweet Pea. And I was like, oh man, I know you, Sweet Pea. You know, he he was around with my dad. You know what I mean? Like he put <laughs> my dad and my aunt. He even knew my aunt. And everything. He was like, oh my god, I remember when you were a little kid? And I'm like, oh man, what's up? And you know, I go to do the little handshake, and he's like, whoa, no, 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 hey man. God bless you, bro. I was like, what? He goes, God bless you. I said, yo, what are you talking about, bro? He's like, yo, I'm, I, don't, I don't do that no more, man. I'm the pastor here, bro. And I was like, and I'm thinking, I'm like, I, I can't even say nothing because this guy has like bodies, you know? He's right. doing three life sentences. And he's a known killer, but I'm just like blown away. And I was like, all right. And he always tried to talk about God to me. And... um I, I, I ignored it. I brushed it off, but he always tried, right? And, you know, it, it always stayed with me. And so, I, you know, I'm in Lewisburg. I was in Lewisburg for about three and a half years. And it was actually in Lewisburg where I saw Chris for the Heisman Trophy candidacy. I saw that. And then when he went to Cincinnati. And um, I, I get transferred from Lewisburg and I get sent to California because I just, I kept getting into stuff. Like I was that guy. I had a chip on my shoulder. I wasn't ducking no wreck, you know? And so I got sent to California, and I'm excuse me, I'm in California in Victorville Penitentiary, which does not look like it does on Fast and Furious. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in Victorville Penitentiary, and there's riots. It's always popping, and stuff is going on. And um, I I was in I was involved in a lot of things I shouldn't have been in. Um, I had got caught up with some with some some dope in prison and I actually extended my sentence and got a, another two and a half years. Yeah. Tons of bad decisions, man. And um I had to go back to Lewisburg to get sentenced and then came back to California. And when I get came back to California, like I I was I was hanging out with like Mexican mafia guys, you know, all these top big wigs were out there. And uh I had got, you know, somebody came and said, hey, uh, we got a little something that's up your alley if you're interested in it for some extra money. And I was like, all right, I'm game. And I'm sitting there, like, I, I basically, I took, uh, I, took, I took a commission to take someone out. And that's how far gone I was, man. And I remember laying in, I was in my cell, and I'm thinking about, all right, tomorrow I got to take this guy out. And I'm trying to think of how I can do this. And I fall asleep thinking about it. And you ever have one of those dreams where, like, you ever, like, be thinking about so much, something so much that it turns into a dream, you know? Mm -hmm. So I'm sitting here thinking about whacking this guy. And I go into the dream. And it, it totally plays out exactly how I'm going to do it. And then right at the end of the dream, I hear this voice say, and this is how you get caught. And it's, and then it was like it was like a movie. I see exactly how I got caught. But me being the stupid idiot that I was, I said, "Well, hold on, let me change this." <laughs> and so I go another route. And the voice says, 
and this is how you get caught. And it did that three times. And then on the third time, it says, no matter what you do, if you kill this man, you're going to spend the rest of your life in here. And I was like, what, what, the, what, what the hell is going on here? Right. And the whole time I'm asleep. I said, what the hell is going on here? And the voice says, what do you really want? I said, man, I, I just want to go home. I want to live a regular life. I want to have a family. And the voice says, so why are you doing everything contrary to that? And I, I didn't have an answer. I, I said, this is what I know. This, No, this isn't all you know. Right. And, and then the voice says, if you would stop denying me, you could have everything that you want. And I said, and I said, who is this? And the voice said, Jesus Christ. This is, I'm the Lord, your God. And then I woke up. And I woke up and when I tell you, I, I like was in a cold sweat, bro. I, I didn't even, I, I was just blown away. And I, I, I didn't understand it, you know? So I didn't, I didn't perform the hit and I just backed out and I just, my mind was just so like confused. About two weeks later, uh, a riot had happened and I ended up in the, in the hole and I'm in the hole and cause they, they tend to grab up all the, like if you're, if a riot takes place, anybody who's considered like a head of something, they snatch up, right. Or anybody who's, who's, who they consider up there, they snatch up and they lock you down. So I'm locked up in the hole and they had us in individual cells, no celly or anything, right? And I'm in, I'm in, I'm in my cell and I'm, I'm like, I have a little radio, you know, kill time. And it's early in the morning, probably about 7.30 in the morning, just got done having breakfast. And I'm getting ready to do my push-ups, my little workout routine. So I'm scrolling around the radio looking for something to listen to. And I hear this voice. And I'm like, let me see what this guy's talking about. Because I, I used to listen to like some of the little AM shows and stuff, hear what's going on in the world, you know, Art Bell, all this stuff, you know. And uh, I hear this voice. I was like, all right, let me check it out. So this guy's talking. And I normally never listen to like any like religious stuff. But there was this guy. His name is Raul Reese. He was the pastor at Calvary Christian Chapel in Pasadena, California. And he's telling a story about how he came to God after coming back from Vietnam. You know, a real quick synopsis of it. Uh, basically, he, he was shell-shocked from Vietnam. His wife and his kids were going through it with him, and he'd lost it. And he laid, he got his rifle. He laid down right in front of the front door far enough back so that when his wife and kids opened up the door, he was just going to, Papa me, each one of them, and kill himself. Only thing was he was sitting there for a long time, and they never came through the door. And then his TV came on, and there was this pastor giving a sermon. And the sermon that he was given was about, uh, I think it's Matthew chapter 12, the, the sermon about the sower of seed. And so he goes into that whole sermon, and 
he gives the same sermon that was given to him, right? And he's breaking down my entire life, bro. Like my entire life, you know, he, he completely broke down through the seed that was scattered. And it brought to me, like everybody who had ever came and tried to talk to me about God, especially Sweet Pea, right? So Raul Reese, in that moment, he ran down to that chapel where the service was on TV. And he comes bursting through the door and runs all the way to the front and gets down on the altar and just tells him, I need Jesus. And, um, his, and he accepts Christ. And he had no idea that sitting a couple rows back was his wife and kids praying for. Oh, my goodness. Wow. And so I, I heard that, and he went more into the, the sower of seed, and he broke down my life, man. And I can tell you, man, I, I've sat and prayed with people before, even when I was in prison, you know, someone would come pray. I'm, I never, like, push them away and say, oh, I don't believe in God. I just, like, whatever, man, if that's what you want to do, you know, all right, come on. And, and nothing ever happened. I never felt anything, you know, because my heart wasn't truly – understanding or anything but at this moment for me like i understood and i got down on my knees right there in my cell and i just prayed the words that he said man asking god to forgive me for everything and i've done a lot man a lot of stuff that i even i i, I have like real bad ptsd like uh when i first got out of prison you know i i used to wake up in the middle of the night stuff but anyways i I got down on my knees and I prayed, man, and I felt this, like this whole weight lifted off of me. And I started reading the Bible and studying it and just feeling God really talk to me. And I went from Victorville to Florence, uh, Colorado, where the ADX is at. I didn't go into the ADX because the ADX is underground, but I went to the penitentiary, which is upstairs. And I was at that penitentiary. And I had no fear, no worry about anything. I didn't carry a knife with me anymore or anything like that. And people were like, you know, I had a reputation. People were wanting me to still be that person. I was like, no, I'm not doing that. And I didn't have issues. God took care of me. I never snitched. I never did any of that. I just followed God. And I started programming and I started taking like different programs like got my apprenticeship, I mean, uh, my, my uh, yeah, my apprenticeship in a, as a residential and commercial electrician. Um, I just started doing a lot of stuff positive because I wanted to get out and be somebody productive. I didn't want to be the old person. And I, 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 I learned that if you, if you don't prepare, then you're, you, you're destined to fail. You know what I mean? And so I just started preparing for what I didn't know what the world was going to be like. And so this is like 2007. And I remember writing my wife a letter about it. She wasn't my wife then, you know, but I wrote her like an 11 page letter and broke it all down. And she was like, I'm with you, you know? And so I get transferred from Colorado to Florida and in Florida, there's a lot of Latin Kings. And I get out there and everybody's like, Oh my God, it's, it's a school. And I'm just like, so up? you want to go to church? You know? <laughs> and it was like, People wanted to say something to me, but they were like, oh, you can't say nothing to this guy. You know who he is, you know? And I, I just I, I just was on a real positive movement. And things worked out where for once in the entire time that I've been in prison, I'm getting closer to home. I was back on the East Coast. I was in Florida. My dad was able to come and see me because 
my dad moved to Jacksonville. He was right out the army. Um, my mom, she was already here in Texas. Uh, my mom had moved out to Texas in uh, 05, uh, right before my my stepdad. He he's also military, so he was in Afghanistan and Iraq a lot too, you know. And now that I was on this whole positive vibe, man, family was wanting to talk to me and interacting with me. Now I wasn't this Looney Tune gangbanger who was just bent on being Scarface. You know what I mean? Now I was actually a real person again. And so I go and I'm in Florida and I'm programming. And next thing you know, like my wife, she was living in Virginia and she's coming to see me. Things are great. We're getting, you know, we're getting ready for me to get, get released now. Uh, I, I did like three and a half years in Florida at Coleman USP. And then all of a sudden my counselor says, Hey Pablo, you want to go to a medium? And I was like, what? <laughs> Me at a medium custody, <laughs> no wall. And I was like, and they're like, yeah. And I was like, man, I, I'd like to either get to Butner or Petersburg because that's super close to my wife, man. And they're like, all right, done. And they submitted me and I didn't get Petersburg, but I got Butner. I was actually locked up with Bernie Madoff, man. <laughs> Funny. And, uh, and uh, my mom, when she found out, you're in there with Bernie? That, that son of a bitch, I lost 300000 <laughs> I was like, you want me to holler at him, Ma? <laughs> he said, no, no, you come home. And so I, I, I'm there, Butner, and, you know, it, it was great because now I'm just looking forward to coming home, man. And it's been a long time. You know, so I, I didn't get released from Butner. Actually, I was doing the drug program in Butner, which was offered to me, but I, it doesn't it didn't lessen my sentence because I, I had violence in my in my in my record, you know. So it was just like, you know, do the program. And I was like, well, I'm here in Butner. I'll, I'll do the program because that's why they sent me to Butner. But they were like trying to get people to really do stuff that could get you messed up in prison. And I was like, I'm not that guy. I'm not going to rap. Like, I, I just will not, you know. I, I man up to my own stuff. You catch me for doing something that I did, all right, hey, you got me. It is what it is. But I'm not going to be, you know, and they, they try to put that into people's minds. Like, this is how everybody is out in the world, you know. And I just like, no, nah, I'm still having trouble believing that, you know. And so because I wouldn't, like, actively participate, like, in the little snitching program they had, they sent me back to Florida. But they didn't send me to the penitentiary because they couldn't. They couldn't raise my custody of mine. Right. So they sent me to Mariana, Florida. And I'm there in Mariana for like a year. And then I get released. And I, I was that guy, like, everybody knew me. You know, I was, I, I was well known everywhere I went. But, like, when I'm, like, getting ready to get released, there's all, everybody's, like, wants to say goodbye and everything. And I'm like, look, when they call me in the morning, and they open that door. I'm gone. If you've never seen someone run a 4240, it's 40 yards from the front door of the unit to R&D. You're going to see a 4-2. All you're going to see is the bottom of my sneakers in my back. I'm gone. And, uh, man, I left. And I was locked up from 2001 of, all the way up until uh, 2013, January. I got out six months before my 31st birthday. Wow. I went to a halfway house, which was a county jail in Virginia. And I was just happy to be home, man. I had long hair. I had braids. You know, I was 205 pounds, rock solid diesel. And uh, all I wanted to do was come home and do the right thing, bro. And I, 
I get home. I didn't start off by doing the right thing. <laughs> I was supposed to take a bus home. I took a flight. <laughs> I jumped <laughs> off the bus. <laughs> it's funny because I'm on the bus and there's a guy with uh, dreads there, real cool guy. I'm actually still friends with this guy to this day. His name's Vel, man. And Vel seen me. He looked at me and he's like, you just got out, didn't you? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, how long were you going? I was like, 12 and a half years. He was like, oh. I was like, yeah. I was like, can I use your phone? And so he passes me, you know, uh, a, a smartphone, right? And I've been gone for over a decade. I'm looking at it. I was like, <laughs> how do you? How do you use this? And he was like, oh, man, my bad. You've been gone. He's, <laughs> How do you flip it open? <laughs> yeah, I'm like, I'm like, no buttons. Where the buttons? <laughs> That's, exactly. That's awesome. So I said, like, hey, there's no buttons. Where are the buttons? He's oh, oh. And so he pulls it up, and he's like, man, I'll just dial the number for you. So I call my girl, and I'm like, hey. And she's like, oh, my God, are you calling me? I was like, this guy is real cool. Named Bell. He loaned me his phone. I was like, hey, get, go buy my plane ticket. I said, we're on our way to, uh, to Tallahassee right now. I'm going to jump off at Tallahassee and a uh, dude's going to give me a ride to the, to the airport. And she's like, all right. So her and my mom, they booked me a plane ticket real quick. And uh, we get to Tallahassee about like an hour and a half later. And now I've got like four hours to kill and I've got money on me. And this guy's girl came and picked him up and he dropped her off at the house. And he's like, Hey, so uh, you want to, we got time to kill you. Anything you want to do? I said, I need a phone, dude. So we go to Walmart and I buy a, a little flip phone boost phone, right? I was like, this is perfect for me. This will work. <laughs> I'm all calling my wife. Yeah, what's up, man? I got my phone. <laughs> we go and grab steak at Carabas, man. It was my first meal out, you know? And uh, so I'm like, dude, get whatever you want. I got it. He was like, dude, you got out of prison. I'll take care. I said, no, no, no. I got it. Trust me. I wasn't locked up for pushing over trash cans, bro. I got this. <laughs> And so we had steak together, man. I had a brew, you know, and uh, he takes me to the airport. I jump on the plane, man, and um, my wife picks me up in D.C. We go home, and it was just great. And uh, I report to the halfway house the next morning. They didn't know the difference. And I go in there, and first day, they're like, all right, you go, got to find a job. I was like, all right, cool. I said, who's hiring? They gave me a list of places. I, I went and interviewed for a job at Denny's the day after I get out, and I got the job at Denny's as a line cook because I, I cooked up, you know, up, up, top, up, up, up in prison, you know. And uh, I get the job at Denny's first day out. I'm like, great, I get a weekend pass. I'm going home my first weekend. I'm good. <laughs> and uh, I chopped all my hair off, you know, because I, I really wanted to change. Like, I, I would not touch nothing. I wouldn't do anything. I had, you know, people found out I was out, they were reaching out to me, and I'm just like, no, I don't know how you found me, lose this number, I'm done, I don't want to know nothing, I don't want to know anybody. Right. I'm living straight. And so I worked at Denny's, then I got a job as a janitor at a nuclear power plant, um, and I also worked at Chesterfield Auto Parts, who they really gave me uh, my first opportunity. Uh, Lindsey Watkins was my boss there, man, and uh, Joyce was the... Uh, she was like the, the admin lady, Joyce Bell. And they loved me like I was family. And I busted my ass for them every day. And um, I just knew, like, I was working, but I hated working, bro. I knew I was meant to do something different. I just had no idea as to what. I had come up with thousands of, literally thousands of business plans, like notebooks I used to send to my wife. 
of business ideas. And, and she went to she went to business school uh, while I was in prison and got her degree. And so we just knew we were going to do something with business, right? And I'm in VA. Uh, me and my wife are now, you know, engaged and we're actually going to get married. And my mom says, hey, come out to Texas. Come, you know, come see me. She came and saw me as soon as I got out. My dad came and saw me. Um, it was great, you know, seeing all my family and everything. And literally my, my mom is like, come out of Texas. So I, I come out of Texas. I, I've never really been in Texas. And I'm thinking, oh, man, I'm going to this backwoods, hillbilly <laughs> area. And I get here and I'm like, this is nice. And I noticed, like, the economy was really booming out here. And my mom was like, why don't you come out here? Because Virginia sucks. Virginia's like super broke and nothing going on. The economy was super poor. The pay was horrible. And it was to me, it was like, I know I was destined for more. So I tell my wife, I was like, look, I told you when I got home, I'll give Virginia one year or we were either going to go to New York or find somewhere else to live. And I told her, I said, I want to go to Texas. So I said, come February, it'll be, I've uh, been here a year. We're gone. I'm putting in for a transfer. You with me or not? She's like, no, I'm with you. So we moved out here to Texas. I started applying for jobs and I got hired in the oil field. Like literally I got here and I had a job immediately. And I worked in the oil field and I was making good money, but I was working like a modern day slave. Oil field went belly up in 2013 and I got laid off. And I was that guy, like literally after a shift, they laid us off, man. They had the uh, the little uh, uh, tailgate meeting. They're like, hey, guys, we're sorry, but we're going to have to let everybody go. Uh, mm. It is. And I'm the guy like this. Thank you. <laughs> These 16-hour days were killing me. <laughs> Thank right. you. I will collect this unemployment check with a smile. <laughs> and uh, then I went to work at Martin Marietta uh, Materials and because I, I can drive anything made by Caterpillar, you know. And so I'm driving these huge loaders and huge, you know, dump trucks. It's like, you know, being in a big sand, lo sand uh, uh, lot. Right. You know, and I was making good money and it was cool. And my wife got pregnant and uh, she, it was actually her second time getting pregnant since I've been home. I, we had a miscarriage in Virginia uh, that summer. And then we came, we came to uh, Texas and she got pregnant within six months. So, uh, my son Junior was actually called a rainbow baby, you know, because after the storm, you see the rainbow. And so yep. was the, the, the miscarriage. And then she got pregnant with my son. And then Martin Marietta, they, I was working at Beckman Quarry, and they're like, hey, we're cutting down at this quarry because we can't blast anymore. You can go to Hondo. And then at that time, I had a friend of mine who worked with me in the oil field who was doing network marketing. And so he's like, bro, you got to check this out. And I'm like, all right, whatever. I'll meet you at the pizza spot with my wife. And uh, we go over there, and they show me World Ventures. And I was like, oh, man, this is so dope. And I knew somebody who was, like, way up there in World Ventures. And he showed me World Ventures one of the first times I had got home. Like, when I first got home and went back to New York, he showed me World Ventures. So I was like, wow, this is insane, you know. And I jumped into it, and I started getting uh, involved in personal development. And I had some great mentors, and that's where I really knew, like, I'm destined for more. And so not long after that, we were going to church out here, 
at Christian World Ministries, um, my pastor, Jason Sides, um, we were going through some tough times, obviously with the layoffs and everything, but now I'm in network marketing. I just know I'm going to make it, right? And it was crazy because my pastor prophesied over me. And my wife and everybody was just like, and I mean, he just came up and just, bam, like, smacked me in the head and pulled me in. And he just, and it was so moving. And I just knew, and I've always held that, you know? And, but it, it wasn't right then. You know what I mean? Like the seed was there, but the, it wasn't growing just yet. Right. And so we went through struggles, man. And I just kept working and doing personal development. And I had a mentor by the name of David Velasquez, man. And this guy is eternally like family to me. He believed in me. And I went through some rough times and he, he helped me out with money when I needed it, but not like a pity party. He helped me out. He's like, dude, I believe in you, man, you know, and I'm going I'm to invest in you. And things start going well in the network marketing and then ups and downs of that, right? And then all of a sudden, like, New Orleans Parish comes and snatches me up from my apartment. And this was, this was uh, in 2017, right? Um, he had just started talking to me about real estate because he's a, he's a private money lender. Right. And he's telling me about real estate. And I'm like, at first I was like, no, mm. but then I'm like, dude, David's a millionaire and he knows money. Let me pay attention to what this guy's saying. Right. Right. He's like, I'm going to plug you in with some people. And literally the day he's going to plug me in with people, New Orleans Parish snatches me up from my apartment complex while I'm talking to the staff there about something, an issue with my dog, because I have a pit bull, right? And they're like one of the few apartment complexes that let you have pit bulls, but I guess they were pissing them on it because my daughter wasn't picking up the, the crap, you know? Right. I just go in there and talk to them, and they they, they were totally approachable, they were totally cool with me, but then all of a sudden these bounty hunters come in there, you know, locked and ready to go, and I'm like, they're like, Pablo Rodriguez, like, you got the wrong one, buddy. There's a million of us here, and I know you got the wrong one. <laughs> I don't even know y'all, but I ain't got nothing out there. You got the wrong guy, buddy. And uh, they didn't have the wrong guy. It was something super old, and they come and get me and take me to New Orleans. And New Orleans is probably one of the most corrupt places, okay? I go to New Orleans. My wife wasn't the breadwinner. She wasn't even working. So we lost our place. We lost our vehicles. She's pregnant with our with our third child, right? Um, she had she has a daughter from a previous relationship, like, but that's my baby. I've right. raised, you know what I mean. That little girl came and saw me when I was in prison, from four years old, and when I got out, she was there with open arms, and she calls me Bobby. You know that that's my baby. So that's we were pregnant with our third child, and I get grabbed up. We lose everything right as I'm getting ready to get into real estate, right? And so I, New Orleans wanted money, that was it. But they waited five months because you get, the, the system pays $125 a day per inmate. So if you're in jail for five months, that jail gets paid off of you, right? So they got their money and then they turn around and said, all of a sudden, lawyer comes to see me and says, hey, Pablo, look, um, 
they're ready to strike a deal with you. I'm like, what, what's up? $3,000 and you get out. I said, what? I can't make this up. $3,000 and you, and you can get released. Wow. So I'm flat broke. My wife's broke. She just started a little job, right? She's out there homeless with the kids, staying with her brother-in-law. I mean, her brother, my brother-in-law, right? My wife and kids, my, my pregnant wife and kids are sleeping at my brother-in-law's house because he, he was there for us, you know? But we're homeless, and I'm in jail. No money. So I called David Velasquez. He's been following up the whole time. He's actually helped my wife out and everything, you know? He did what he could do. But he was there as a friend, and he'd take my calls, and he's like, dude, what's up? When are you coming home? I need you, you know? <laughs> and um, I called him up. I said, hey, Dave, look, man, here's the deal. I gave him the full rundown. And he says, what do you need? I said, I need three grand. He says, where do I send it? I said, here's the number to the lawyer, man. Call the lawyer. He's like, I'll take care of this right now. I said, well, they're going to need it tomorrow. He says, okay, I'm going to do it right now because they're not going to have no excuse. They better let you out tomorrow. I, I was like, all right, bet. I went to court the next day. They're all like, yeah, we got the wire. Everything's good. The judge is all right. Well, Mr. Rodriguez, you're free to go. Wow. And they released me. And I got released. Remember that big freeze that happened? Yeah. During the big freeze when the highways are shut down, <laughs> airports are shut down, right? So trip out on this, bro. Whole time I'm in New Orleans, I started a prayer circle, right? And I'm doing a prayer circle, and there's this CEO named Sherry Noel, awesome lady who I'm still in contact with to this day. And she prayed with us every day. Like, she come in there, elderly lady, white lady, from New Orleans, got the, the sickest Nolans accent you ever heard, right? Right. And she praying with us and every day. And so the day, like, I'm getting ready to get released, she's like, Pablo, I don't know what you're going to do, honey, but I know you're going to be successful. She says, here's my name and number. I want to keep praying with you and keep up with you. I was like, man, I'd be honored. Thank you. So the big freeze happens, the plane ticket that got booked for me to fly back to, to, to San Antonio, I'm stuck. I'm right. stuck at the airport. I spent the night in the airport. And so I call her and I was like, hey, uh, the big freeze shut down and everything. And I'm here. And she's like, what? Baby, I'm going to come pick you up. You can stay at my house. I was like, no, 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 no. She's like, no. You're a man of God. I'm a woman of God. I got my, my children and everything. You can come stay at my house. You ain't got to sit in no airport because it's going to be a couple days. And so then we tried a bus, but the roads were closed. The highways were shut down completely. Ten was shut down, right? So I stayed with her for three days, and she fed me. And she, she, even, like, she even went and got me uh, some clothes, bro. You know? Wow. And I get back to San Antonio finally, and I talk to Dave, and he's, he comes. He hugs me. He's like, man, I'm just glad you're home. He's like, what are you, you going to do? I said, hey, man, if it's still available, man, I'd, I'd like to really get into the real estate. And so he plugs me up with Sam Madrid and Madison Madrid, right, who are like two owner financing monsters here in San Antonio. Like Sam Madrid, uh, he's like really well known. He's got like almost a thousand properties that he holds the notes on, right? Dude, like, you know, he started from nothing. And his daughter... He never gave his daughter nothing. He's like, I'm going to show you the game, and you can go back your first property. You're going to earn this, you know? Right. And they're just really great people who I, I've known them through World Ventures, you know? 
but they respected my hustle and they 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 seen my hustle in, in the network marketing and knew if I applied that to real estate, I'd be a monster. So they start teaching me how to do owner finance. I was their acquisitions and disposition manager. I'd find the properties from wholesalers and then turn around and dispo it out by finding families who maybe don't have the best credit and help them get their first opportunity to own a home, right? And so I was doing that. And literally in my first 60 days, I was able to go from sleeping on my brother-in-law's futon with my pregnant wife to moving down the street from it. Nice. In 60 days time, I, I made like a little over, uh, I think a little over 12,000. And I was able to, like we got a vehicle, we were able to, uh, we had to, our credit and everything was messed up. So we had to do a double deposit on the house. And this funny story about this house that I live in now, man, is my wife said, oh, there's a house down the street. She says, but we'll never get it. It's 20, it's 2,500 square feet. It's four bedroom, two and a half bathrooms. Big, biggest thing we've ever, we would ever live in. And it's got an in-ground pool in the backyard with a barbecue area. It's like the dream home, right? And I said, that's our house. She said, babe, we can't afford that. I said, that's our house. God ain't put that in front of us for us not to get it. That's our house. And so she literally filled out the application and submitted it just to shut me up. Just so just so we could get denied and she could say, I told you so. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it didn't happen. They said, you know what? Bring double deposit. So 1875 two times. And bring the first month rent. So 1875 three times. Right? I said, all right, bet. Hustled it up. We did it in three weeks. Yep. And just grinding on the real estate, man. And and it, it was such a blessing for me, you know? And, you know, Sam and Sam and Madison, man, they they just blessed me so much. And then I then I got hungry, right? And uh I started like looking into real estate because I didn't get complacent just doing their systems. Like I had told them, like, look, I'm not gonna be here forever. Like, I'm gonna learn this and then I'm gonna do my own thing because I'm not meant to work for somebody. And they just thought it was gonna take longer. And fast forward six months, I'm now learning about wholesaling. And it happened because Aaron Bevins uh, sold us a deal, Yeah. right? And I get paid for finding the deals with the wholesalers. And I look at the HUD and I see Aaron getting $20,000. <laughs> And, and I'm looking, I'm like, <laughs> I'm looking at the HUD, Aaron Bevins, 20,000, Pablo Rodriguez, 2,500. I'm like, 20,000, 2,500, 20,000, 20, what the hell is he doing that I'm not doing? Right. So I, I hit Aaron up and I was like, hey, listen, <laughs> hey, bro, I, I think there's a little bit of a mistake here. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out how you're getting 20 G's and I'm getting 2,500. And he's like, you know, Aaron, oh, bro, you know. It's my assignment fee. And I was like, you're what? And so he kind of breaks it down to me. And I was like, get out of here. And so then I start putting up bandit signs. And I bagged my first deal off a bandit sign that I literally stuck in a vacant property. I stuck it in the front yard, right? And the neighbors across the street called me. And they're all like, hey, uh, we saw your sign in the house across the street from us. Uh, but our are you buying other properties or are you just trying to buy that property? I said, oh, no, no, no. I'm trying to get everything moving. What you got? <laughs> and they showed me this house down on the west side off of uh, 90 in McMullen, man. And 
I negotiated it and everything. You know, I had been watching like Max Maxwell and uh, House Buy and Brian. I'm watching their videos and I'm just trying to pick up everything. So I'm negotiating a deal and I got a sweet deal where it was a, a, a 5K assignment fee, you know? Right. And so I literally like, I turn around and it was so cool because I did that deal. I was still with Sam and, and Madison and I sold it to, to Sam Madrid, right? He bought my first wholesale deal off me. Like that was legit mine. But the funny thing is I'm doing the contract and I didn't know what the hell I was doing, right? Because I'd never filled out the contract. Sam had somebody to do that for you, you know? Right. And so, and so Aaron, I call Aaron. I'm like, hey, hey, bro, look, uh, I got this, uh, I got this uh, contract. Uh, I need you to walk me through how to fill it out. <laughs> and he was like, okay, cool. I got you. Uh, we can do it later. I said, no, 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 no. I got the seller right here ready to sign. I need you to walk me through. <laughs> He's like, oh, I got you, bro. And he's, he's telling me where to put everything. And I'm like, uh-huh. Yeah. And I'm telling the seller, yeah, no, nah, I'm just going over the particulars with my partner. Uh, don't worry about it. That's I'm so a- funny. Yeah. And so, and I, I busted I, I busted that right down the middle with Aaron. You know what I mean? That and is hilarious. It, 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 so that was my start in wholesaling. And then crazy thing is, like, I'd worked at, like, direct TV call centers uh, while I've been here in Texas, you know. And so I was used to cold calling. And so I tell Aaron, hey, come to my crib, bro. And Aaron comes to my crib. He's like, oh, man, you know, you got a dope crib, bro. Like, dude, I'm married with, with, two, with two kids, my, and, well, with three kids, you know? Right. I'm like, I need space. And um, he's like, man, it's dope. And we just start talking up. And I'm, I'm like talking to him about wholesale. I'm trying to learn everything. And he's, he's giving me stuff. And we're going back and forth. And, and I'm like, hey, bro, I said, um, I really like the vibe that you got. You know what I mean? I was like, why don't we partner up? And he was like, what would that look like? And I was like, look, I've got this idea, man. I said, you cold call, right? He's like, yeah. And he was showing me, you know, how he was cold calling. And I was like, I could do this better. And he was like, how? I was like, bro, I, I worked for DirecTV cold call. And me and my wife both did. And we were like some of the top salespeople. You know what I mean? I can, I can sell sand to a camel, bro. Water to a <laughs> and he was like, word i was like dude we can we can create like a whole cold calling center and be able to just go on the appointments and teach other people how to call elites force he was like oh my god that would be fire and so we parted up and we actually did it and i had like a little hole in the wall office that i was doing the order finance out of and i went to sam and madison i said hey man look i'm gonna be moving forward i want to do my own thing and they were like what it's only been six months i was like yeah but i'm i'm ready and they supported me, and they're like, hey, "Bring us all your deals that you know what we look for. Bring it straight to us." I was like, "I got you." Right. But the uh, the the fee that you guys were giving me before, that's not gonna work. Right. <laughs> my fees, my fee. You know. And they respected. They were totally, you know, they were totally cool with it. So me and Aaron, we started building like this whole cold calling thing. I actually had some of the people that I worked with during the Direct TV come over and grind with us. Uh, people from World Ventures that I knew were savages, I brought them on with us. And we literally had like eight cold callers that we were grinding with. And then he had a, he had a, a business already in place, a partnership with uh, Annalise Maddox, who's so cool, you know. And so we just kind of put it all together, but still kept it separated, you know. And we built. And next thing you know, dude, we started like our first month in business we had set a goal for ourselves, like let's try to close forty thousand 
and assignment fees. And we actually hit 64. Nice. And it was so awesome. Like we were blown away and we were doing a broadcast. And look, Aaron knew a lot of information, but he didn't know half of probably what he knows now. You know what I mean? So we were like really rough. We didn't have like systems and stuff like that. We were literally like, we had our list printed out and we were just smiling and dialing. You know what I mean? <laughs> and then we had a broadcast. Aaron, Aaron had got a broadcast set up and we were getting this broadcast where it would ring to everybody's phone and we had them fighting like dogs over a bone for who was going to answer the call first because the call would go to everybody's phone. First one to pick up gets it. And then it was like, it was, we had, we had the, our first day, we, it was crazy. We had the dialer turned up to like a hundred calls in a minute, right? So everybody's phone is going crazy. We burned through our entire, uh, uh, like money, the right. in the one shot, but the phones were still ringing for three days afterwards because there were just so many calls built up. Right. And we were bagging deals out of there, man. And it was, it was so crazy. I mean, me and Aaron, it was, you know, young meets old, but with the crazy hustle, you know? Right. And we were just getting it, man. And I learned so much, you know, because of Aaron and then got to introduce to so many people. Like, that's how I met Q and 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 uh, Quentin Flores. And so Q actually came to meet Aaron one day. And Aaron's like, well, I'm going to introduce you to my business partner, Pablo. And so we're all talking and we're we're just like masterminding and, and, and throwing ideas out there. And I'm, I was... I was a little leery of Q and Garrett at first. I was like, hold on. <laughs> this, you know? But they were mad cool, man. And and we, we ended up getting super cool. They had an office in our same office building. And we were linking up and we were doing stuff. And they they create they put the same system in place that we did. You know what I mean? And we were spitballing ideas off of each other. But Q just had so much more knowledge because I mean he had so many more years in the game than us. And so did Garrett, you know? And um Months down the line, we're going through, you know, the growing pains of business. And me and Aaron, uh, we just decided, like, right at the beginning of this year, you know what, man? We're focused in two different directions, and we're both being pulled so much. And I'm just like, you know, we're like, both of us were like, hey, bro, you know, this is the, it's time for us to go in different directions, you know? And it was cool. It was amicable. All the love and respect in the world for that guy, man. For real. He's a positive force. Um and it was cool because we, you know, we still chop it up. And so we, we, we parted ways and I had, I had all, I had my, all my callers, you know what I mean? My crew, they're super loyal to me. Like my team, they're ride or die with me. Uh, and the, the best ones were Joaquin Morales, uh, Dream Alvarez and Philip Campbell, you know? And uh, I, I was sitting there, I'm like, okay, we got to do something. And Q and Garrett, like, always hit me up and chop it up, man. And I was just like, you know what? I got a lot to learn. Like, I'm, I'm not prideful. You know what I mean? Like, I, I don't feel like I know everything. Even right now, I don't know, you know, a tenth of what you know, RJ. You know what I'm saying? And so I legit got the idea. I was sitting there one night, you know, at my house. And I'm like, man, I got I to gotta feed my savages. You know what I mean? I got to feed them. I got to help them. Forget me, you know what I mean? I, I got to, these, these, these kids, they're young, right. 17, uh, 20, and one just turned uh, uh, 24, I think it was, right? They're young, you know what I mean? Still living at home uh, or, or just got their first place, you know? And, and, and I was like, 
they believed in me and they rode with me. I got to deliver. So I, I legit, I, I went to Q. I, I said, hey, Q, hey, mind if I come by the office now? I want to chop it up with you. And I went over there and I was like, look, me and Aaron just parted ways, bro, on good terms. And I know you deal with Aaron, so you can, you know, verify this with him. I said, but um, I have a squad, bro. I got a squad of killers. But I also know I have a lot to learn in this business and there's stuff I still don't know. You know what I mean? I said, Q, you threw like, you had tossed an idea out a while back, man, about partnering up. And I said, I know that was when me and Aaron were partners, but I also know, you know, there's there's potential here. I said, so what's up? And Q was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, bet, let's do it. You know what I mean? And uh, we, he said, what do you got? I said, dude, look, when it comes to cold calling, I honestly feel like nobody can touch me. I'll sit and go toe-to-toe with anybody. I don't, I don't give a damn. You know what I mean? I said, but what I bring to the table is exactly what you saw at your wholesaling house is ground zero thing. You know what I mean? He let me he let me speak on stage and I killed it. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I, I know I can bring that to your office and we can build a freaking conglomerate, bro. I said, I, I'm I come from a different era than you, Q. I come from an era where dope boys got money together. It wasn't crabs in a bucket backbiting like the block that I came up on, we all got money together. And that's what I want to do in my business. If we're gonna be partners, it's ride or die. It's bad boy for life. You know what I mean? I'll support anything you do, support what I do, but let's build this business and let's change lives. You know what I'm saying? And I said, these kids I got with me, they're 100% loyal to me. There's nothing that you can, anybody can offer them. They'll ever take anybody, go, go that route. They're loyal to me. You know what I mean? Like we've got blood, sweat, and tears together. I said, I know I can take your office to the next level. And we can go to the next level. I said, I feel like we could build some. You have so much knowledge. And then I have what I have, I guess, this raw, you know, talent. I said, I can teach everybody to do what I do on the phones and we can kill this thing. And Q and Garrett were like, let's run it. No question. Garrett was like, dude, I've been wanting to work with you. You're my, you know, you're my freaking bro. You know what I mean? Like I've been wanting this. Let's go. And he looked, he like he looked at Q. He says, "Bro, if you don't do it, I'm working with Pablo." <laughs> you know I mean? And so it was just, it was so much love, man. And like the the way they embraced me and my team, and literally like, announced to the office, "Hey, look, Pablo's our new partner. Me, Garrett, me and Garrett are now partners with Pablo, and we're gonna run this thing and take Infinity Gauntlet, which is now Infinity Cash offers, to the next level, right?" And we came in and dude, like our, our, our first freaking month, like I, I think we did two, 220. Wow. Like 220 the first month here with Q, you know, and we've grown, like we've already taken on more cold callers and everybody's killing it. And it's just been like such a blessing. And like, I'm true. I, Q has been a blessing in my life. I mean, to give me the opportunity to speak on stage, which, I've always wanted, like, I, I love pouring life into people. You know what I mean? Right. Given what I went through and what I've been through, everybody told me I wasn't going to be shit, bro. Everybody told me, you're going back. You ain't going to be nothing. You're going to go back to the streets. And I haven't. You know what I mean? I've, I've, I've continued to progress. And I see so, so much of the youth out here that's, 
not guided and not guided, not because they don't want to be, but because it's never been available to them. Like I wouldn't be here today if somebody didn't see me and believe in me or see that potential in me. David Velasquez saw that potential in me, bro. Nope. Like that man can call me two o'clock in the morning. He knows I see David V on here. Hey, what's up, Dave? What do you mean? Like, <laughs> I, I, I've gone, I like, he, that man, like, he's like family, bro. Like, his father was in the hospital, and I went to go visit his dad because he was in Guatemala building a school, bro. And he was wow. like, he, he asked me, he's like, hey, man, you know, Pops knows you, you know? You mind going by there just so he doesn't feel lonely? Done. Done. I'll be there tonight. And I, I went down there, and he was like, hey, Bob, listen, I'm going to Guatemala, but hey, Pablo's going to be here, man. He was like, oh, all right. That's good, man. You know, and, and you know, good, good. That man was a tank, man. That We called him the Terminator because literally <laughs> he was told he was going to die like six times before it, like, actually happened. He just kept coming back, getting out of the hospital, going home. And then uh, he, he passed away uh, earlier this year, you know, and uh, – I, you know, I went to go say goodbye to him and was around the family, but that family is like my family, bro. You know, I love each one of them. Right. Well, man, you have uh, one incredible story. Um, <laughs> that, is, <laughs> that, that journey is uh, unlike anybody else's, I'm sure. And, uh, you know, I've had the pleasure of having Q and Aaron on the podcast before. And uh, I was just on Aaron's podcast on Tuesday of this week. And, um, you know, all of you guys, I've said this to both Q and Aaron, I think the the thing that stands out to me about y'all is that you have this undying uh, desire for success and you're so outspoken about it. Like you're not afraid to talk about what you're wanting to accomplish. Whereas so often people don't want to talk about what they want to accomplish. They only talk about, hey, I did accomplish this, pat me on the back. Whereas you're out there saying, this is what we're going to do. And we're going to show you along the way how we're doing it. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm so appreciative of the content that, you know, Q puts out. And, and, you know, you've jumped in on that where you're, you're putting out videos on how to cold call and just pouring into the real estate investing community. So, um, you guys, I, I don't know what they have in that water down in San Antonio, man, but, uh, <laughs> You guys are uh, y'all are quite a crew down there, and it, it's a it's an honor to get to to be able to interview you guys, share y'all stories, and uh, consider you guys friends. Thank you. I mean, I never thought like I'd be you know on a podcast <laughs> with Mister Titania. You know what I mean, and, dude. I, I'm honored and just to be able to be on this show, and you know, at the end of the day, man, like I love real estate, man. I, I never thought anything about it before, but I, I, I love real estate and the opportunity that it gives people to be able to change their life and, and break chains of bondage that have been over them. And it doesn't discriminate, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I just feel like what I've learned and what I'm constantly learning now, and just to be able to share that with people and give people a chance to do something different, to break out of the norm and to get out of what, uh, the expectations that people are putting over them. I feel like I have a voice for that. And I feel like I can motivate people and, and lift people up. I've been through struggles. I've, I've been, I've been shot. I've been beaten up. 
I've been through all types of stuff, you know, uh, and to come from where I came from and I don't even consider what people think as my success, even success yet. Right. It's part of my story, but I feel like that can help somebody get to the next level. Then I want to help them. I want to be that voice to pour into them, to help them believe in themselves and to show them, look, if I did it coming from where I came from, what I've been through and the, the 12 and a half year stretch that I did, if I can do it, you can do it. Well, I agree with that, buddy. And, and then, you know, if you didn't take anything from today's interview, um, at least take this. I mean, so often I hear people talk about complaining about a deal falling out of escrow or, you know, a seller accepting somebody's else, somebody else's offer, uh, you know, or, or, uh, you know, someone, you know, when you're marketing your, your wholesale property, someone tries to go around you and sneak behind you and circumvent you with the seller and all these different things that people complain about in the real estate world, man. Um, your story puts a lot of those uh, problems into perspective, right? Um, I'm pretty sure when, when you were, you know, doing your time, uh, you, you would have gladly <laughs> taken on any of those issues. Um, yeah, so uh, just keep that in perspective. And uh, just the, the massive amount of opportunity um, that you've been able to create for yourself. I mean, so often people complain about, all of the reasons why they can't do things. Um, you know, I, not to, to stir the pot, but you know, I'm just going to be honest with you. We're at like uh, the hundredth minute of this interview. So we might get like two or three people to make it this far before they turn it <laughs> off. But uh, so often I, I see people complain because of the race, um, because of their gender, um, because of the lack of resources. Um, there's so many excuses that people make. And at the end of the day, um, you can make those excuses or you can leverage them to make you successful. Um, I'm just going to be honest with you, just where I said, I, <laughs> sometimes I kind of laugh. I'm like, okay, so I was like middle class growing up. I'm a male and I'm white. Like I am like the most prototypical real estate investor of all time. Like I, <laughs> this is like what I was supposed to do, right? Like how do I stand out in this, in this crowd, you know? And, and so often I, I have people um, not necessarily say that I was blessed or lucky or, you know, it, it, it's easier for me to do things. But honestly, man, I, I look at your situation. I think now the, the times are changing where people will look at your story and, and look at you as, a, as, as an inspiration, you know. Um, the, the same thing with Max Maxwell. Why, why do we think Max Maxwell has, has blown up? He's, he's a great marketer, but also he's an inspiration to the African-American community. Um, same thing with a bunch of uh, female um, investors right now. Where, where the, because they're good marketers and they're putting it out there, they're an inspiration to women. And, uh, right? Yeah, I mean, and, and at the end of the day, I just want people to kind of look at that and, and realize you have a choice. Whatever your circumstance is, whatever you can grasp onto as an excuse, you know, if you want to sit there and say, I can't wholesale, I can't do this because I'm black or because I'm Mexican, um, no, you can. Um, and you can actually leverage it to where it's, it's actually 
better for you, you know, and, and um, your situation, finding the surrounding yourself with people um, like Q, like Aaron, like David, you know, it, that's a, a huge, um, I, I applaud you for doing that because so often you could have just clung to your excuses as to why you couldn't go out and create this life for yourself and for your family. And you could have continued to work at jobs like Denny's. You could have continued to try to find jobs in the oil field and work those 16 hour days. But instead you surrounded yourself by the right people and you made a change in your life. Um, with that being said, buddy, at some point in time, we got to wrap this interview up. So uh, I want to just, if I could, I want to yeah. drop one, one quick jewel, jewel on, on everybody, man. I've been, I've been poor. I've been well off and I've been poor again. Um, I've been through all types of struggles, not knowing how I was going to pay bills, how I was going to do what, but my refusal to quit. Anybody who wants to be successful, you have to refuse to quit no matter the obstacle. I have sold water bottles on the side of the road underneath the highways, right, to make money. When you want something, you will find a way. When you want something bad enough, it will come to you. One thing that I have learned is the universe, the world, God works like this. He gives you an idea. He gives you an opportunity that you can embrace and you can go after. And you go after it and you have obstacles which are tests of how bad do you want it? How bad do you want what you saw in your mind's eye? How bad do you want to be successful? How bad do you want to achieve the dream? Those obstacles are meant to test you, but to also fortify you and strengthen you because you're able to look back at each one that you overcome and say that the next one isn't going to be as bad. Because if this one didn't break me and I thought this one was the worst, then this damn sure isn't going to break me. And what I've done is every time I encounter obstacle, I just drive and I keep going no matter what. And I refuse to believe otherwise. You know, the books that everybody talks about, Think and Grow Rich and, and you know, all those positive books, Successful Leaders, you know, all that stuff, it tells you. The mind is the beginning of it. The mind and the spirit more so. You know, I feel like, and I, you know, I don't knock anybody's religion, but I feel like if, you, if you're at one with your maker, then you're going you're gonna to succeed. You just have to believe in what your maker has put before you, you know, what God has put before you as an opportunity for you to achieve your success and go after and don't stop. And, and you have to have like almost um, like insane, blind faith in that and refusal to accept anything different. You have to have a firm belief in it so it can happen. But when you've gone so much and you've overcome, overcome so many obstacles, the universe says, you know what? Damn it, RJ just ain't going to quit. Pablo's just not going to quit. Go ahead and give it to him. Yep. And, that's when, and that's when you have it. And so, I, will, I will say one thing. I'll correct you on one thing that you said there. You were never poor, okay? You were broke. <laughs> poor and uh, wealthy are mindsets. You can be poor or you can be wealthy. Yeah. You can be wealthy and be broke and you can be rich and be poor. Okay. Okay. So rich, like rich and broke. That's, that's a matter of how much money you got in your bank account. How much, how much money you got. You know, that, admit, that you can, you can be wealthy and rich. Okay. But wealthy mm -hmm. is a mindset thing. Okay. I learned this way back when I had next to $0 in my bank account. And I said, I'm the wealthiest man alive. 
And since I've thought about that, blessings have come our way because we have continued to work because I realized something that the wealthy always work, the wealthy always improve, the wealthy are always networking, the wealthy are always finding opportunities, not excuses. So you were never poor because if you were poor, you wouldn't have been selling water bottles under the bridge. You would have been sitting under the bridge going, well, my life sucks and I can't do anything. And what am I going to do? Who's going to help me? No, you said, I'm not. I'm okay. I'm going to take this water bottle. It cost me 20 cents. I'm going to charge a dollar. I made 80 cents. That's, that's a wealthy mindset. So with that being said, buddy, uh, we're going to wrap it up on that. I hope you guys got value out of this. That Pablo, incredible story, my man. And uh, at the end of the day, <clears throat> I think we both can say um, that the power of, of our, our Savior, um, our Lord and Jesus Christ, um, has made a, a huge impact on not only our lives, our families' lives, but our careers. And uh, there's power in that. If you don't like what I just said, that's okay. It's my opinion. This is my podcast, and you chose to listen to it. So give me a five-star review because you love what I just said. So, all right, Pablo. All right, uh, Thank you for joining us, buddy. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Thank you, man. Thanks so much for listening to the Titanium Vault with your host, RJ Bates III. For more info and to stay up to date, visit www.podcast.thetitaniumvault.com and on facebook.com slash thetitaniumvault. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and review, and we'll catch you next time on the Titanium Vault. Titanium Vault.